Welcome to NTD News Today. I'm Kevin Hogan. Let's take a look at our top stories. The Justice Department urging a judge not to let former President Trump have a special master. We break down why the DOJ argues he shouldn't have a third party to oversee the documents. As illegal immigrants continue to be bused from Texas to New York City and Washington, D.C., the city of El Paso says the federal government will cover the costs. A new gun law is coming to the Empire State tomorrow. Concealed carry will be prohibited in many places, and getting a permit to carry will also be more difficult. And the last leader of the Soviet Union dies at 91. Mikhail Gorbachev helped end the Cold War and saw the disintegration of the Soviet Union. We start with an update on the FBI raid. The Justice Department is urging a judge not to let former President Trump have a special master. That would be a neutral person to review materials the FBI took from Mar-a-Lago. And today's Jessica Beatty has more on the DOJ's filing. In a court filing Tuesday, the DOJ urged the judge to reject Trump's request for a special master, arguing Trump lacks the legal standing to ask for oversight of presidential records because they don't belong to him, they belong to the government. It also argues that a special master could impede the ongoing investigation and says a special master is unnecessary because they've already separated any documents subject to attorney-client privilege. The filing includes a redacted FBI photo of documents and classified cover sheets that were removed from Trump's home. Trump's team has said Trump declassified the documents he brought to Mar-a-Lago. Trump responded to the photo Wednesday on True Social, writing, Lucky I declassified. In the filing, the DOJ also claimed U.S. government documents were likely concealed and removed from a storage room at Mar-a-Lago in an effort to obstruct the FBI's investigation. But Trump's team has said they've been cooperating and negotiating with the National Archives, and there was no reason to raid Trump's home, which the FBI had access to earlier this summer. Trump's lawyers have until Wednesday night to respond to the DOJ's latest court filing. Meanwhile, former Trump aide Kash Patel says the DOJ did not black out his name in its affidavit because of politics. Last week, a judge ordered the DOJ to release the document used to obtain the FBI search warrant of Trump's home. Much of the documented names were blacked out, but not Patel's. It's unclear why. Only one other person, a Democrat lawmaker, was named. Earlier this month, the DOJ argued against releasing the affidavit, in part to protect witnesses. Patel told Just the News the DOJ showed his name for political effect and to silence him and President Trump and everybody else. Republican strategists have told the Epoch Times the FBI raid and probes are unlikely to hurt Trump's popularity or dampen his prospects for a presidential run in 2024. Jessica Beatty, NTD News. NTD reached out to the Department of Justice for a comment on Patel's allegations regarding the affidavit but did not hear back before broadcast. And more news surrounding the former president. A federal judge canceled a scheduled hearing over a Trump attorney's seized cell phone. That's despite the attorney arguing that a search warrant may not actually exist to make the seizure legal. John Eastman is a lawyer who advised former President Trump on alleged election issues during the 2020 presidential election. He's being investigated by the January 6th committee. 
He said in June that the FBI seized his cell phone. He later filed a motion in court asking for the seized belongings to be returned. A hearing was set for next week. The lawyer also challenged another search warrant that lets investigators review the phone's contents. The judge then canceled the original hearing and will instead decide the matter based on written submissions from the parties involved. Federal agents served the initial search warrant on Eastman in June while he was leaving a restaurant. Eastman argues that the initial warrant, quote, does not describe with particularity the items to be seized and is overbroad and provides no probable cause link to any criminal activity. And more on the DOJ, a top FBI agent has reportedly resigned after allegations of political bias. A former FBI agent told our reporter how this might affect the Bureau and its investigations. Multiple news outlets report that top-level FBI agent Timothy Tebow resigned from the Bureau last week. That's after criticism from Republican Senator Chuck Grassley, who said Tebow showed political bias in his investigations. On Tuesday, Grassley responded to Tebow's reported resignation, saying this type of bias in high-profile investigations casts a shadow over all the Bureau's work that he was involved in, and that the effort to revive the FBI's credibility can't stop with his exit. In July, Grassley accused Tebow of purposely marking evidence against Hunter Biden as disinformation, and then placing it in a restricted access file. FBI Director Christopher Wray was asked about Tebow's alleged bias earlier this month. He said the FBI wants to gather all information so they can go after such conduct. Mark Ruskin is a former FBI agent and the author of the book The Pretender, My Life Undercover for the FBI. He says he doesn't believe that the evidence against Hunter Biden is misinformation and says the FBI should renew the investigation. And now it'll be under you know, careful scrutiny not just from within the FBI, but also from uh, from Congress and the Senate. So how does this affect public opinion of the Bureau? Can Americans trust the Bureau and their other investigations, for example, into former President Trump? Ruskin says Tebow's scandal could actually help the FBI renew trust. If the investigation now can go forward without any ideological uh, interference, then it's a very positive development, and it will, it will renew trust of the FBI by the public. But Ruskin says it's also possible that the FBI just used Tebow as a scapegoat, as he was already in retirement age. NTD reached out to the FBI to confirm that Tebow resigned, but the Bureau said they don't comment on personal matters. Reporting by Arian Pastar, NTD News. Back to Trump. A judge ruled that a key source for the anti-Donald Trump dossier needs to explain why he needs to use classified information in his upcoming trial. Authorities say Igor Danchenko provided information for the documents compiled by the former British spy Christopher Steele. He is slated to go on trial later this year on five charges of lying to the FBI about the information. He appeared in Virginia for a closed-door hearing after he notified the court of his intent to use classified information in his defense. The judge ordered that he should specify what classified information he intends to use at the trial and why that information is necessary and relevant. Danchenko is a Russian national and was charged in November 2021. He pleaded not guilty and faces up to 25 years in prison if convicted. Hillary Clinton's campaign and other Democrats funded the anti-Trump report. And a new gun law is taking effect in New York tomorrow. Many public and even some private places are now off limits to people who carry concealed weapons, even if they have a permit for it. Here's that story. 
The Concealed Carry Improvement Act, or CCIA, is taking effect in New York State on September 1st. The act marks many places in the state as gun-free zones and also makes it harder for applicants to obtain a concealed carry permit. New York introduced the new law after the U.S. Supreme Court struck down parts of New York's previous concealed carry permit system. The Empire State used to give permits only to people who demonstrate a special need for self-defense, which the high court ruled unconstitutional. Only days after the Supreme Court's decision, New York introduced its new Concealed Carry Improvement Act. New York Governor Kathy Hochul said the court's ruling was, quote, a reckless decision removing century-old limitations on who is allowed to carry concealed weapons in our state. Critics of the new law say there are so many places where carrying isn't allowed that it will be hard for permit holders to go about their daily business in public. Some of those places are establishments that serve alcohol, daycare facilities and playgrounds, schools, entertainment venues, libraries, houses of worship, polling locations, public transit, and Manhattan's Times Square. The law also carries a no-carry presumption for private property that can only be rebutted if the property owner posts signs saying concealed carry is allowed. John R. Lott Jr., president of the Crime Prevention Research Center, says murderers depend on victims being defenseless. In a recent article in The Federalist, Lott wrote 96% of all the mass public shootings occur in places where guns are banned. The CCIA also increased the required time spent in classroom instruction for a permit from 4 to 16 hours. Applicants will also be required to undergo a character and conduct review. They have to provide access to three years of their social media accounts. CCIA supporters say such a review is needed because murderers sometimes hint at planned acts of violence before carrying them out. The new law is already under challenge in the courts by civil rights groups. El Paso, Texas is busing illegal immigrants to New York City, and they say the Federal Emergency Management Agency, or FEMA, will pay for it. This, this service provides everywhere from uh, providing meals for transportation toiletries, anything that's needed for these migrants, whether it be cots, COVID vaccines, COVID testing, that, that's what we've been providing. And chartering buses is no different. Our, our original buses, we started back in pre-COVID times, so back in 2019. The city has chartered four buses for volunteer illegal immigrants in the past week in a program separate from Governor Greg Abbott's plan. According to Abbott's office, Texas has spent $12 million to send over 8,900 illegal immigrants to New York City and Washington, D.C. Both New York City and D.C. are sanctuary cities. Officials say they also considered chartering a bus to Chicago, but not enough illegal immigrants wanted to go there. FEMA has said it will reimburse local governments and NGOs for the cost of aiding and transporting illegal immigrants, but has not commented on El Paso's buses. A legal foundation is pushing back against a proposed New York City law that would let non-citizens vote. The law was signed last December, but a federal judge struck it down in June this year. In July, the city indicated they planned to appeal to reinstate it. The law group is arguing that it would violate the rights of four citizens. The Public Interest Legal Foundation is asking a federal court to pressure the city not to count votes from non-citizens. The law in question amends the city charter to allow lawful permanent residents who are authorized to work in the U.S. to participate in city elections even if they aren't U.S. citizens. The lawsuit alleges that letting non-citizens vote diminishes the weight of other votes, including of the four plaintiffs. The attorneys note that there are 900,000 potential non-citizen voters. That's between 15 and 20 percent of the total electorate, a percentage greater than the margin of victory in many city elections. The Public Interest Legal Foundation said in a press release, quote, 
foreigners voting will harm the voting strength of black Americans in New York City. They cited racially focused language from city council minutes to argue the purpose of the law is to change voter demographics. Supporters of the law say anyone paying taxes should be able to vote. The U.S. military is sharing details of a tense confrontation that occurred between the U.S. Navy and the Iranian Navy in international waters. The U.S. Navy says it had to stop an Iranian ship from taking an American military drone in the Arabian Gulf. According to officials, U.S. forces were passing through the region Monday night. That's when they spotted an Iranian Navy support ship towing the unmanned vessel. The military uses the maritime drone for navigation and to collect data. American forces told the Iranians they wanted it back. In a standoff that lasted four hours, the Navy had to move a Seahawk helicopter to fly over the drone and position a patrol boat closer to the area. The Iranians eventually freed it and left the scene. The military says the drone did not have sensitive or classified information on it, but it is U.S. government property. And coming up, Jackson, Mississippi residents are still dealing with a water crisis due to a failure at a water treatment plant. The situation is causing closures of schools and businesses. And Atlantic City, New Jersey is looking for a way to deal with rising sea levels. The city is surrounded by water and flooding is becoming a problem. Stay tuned for more after this short break. Residents of Jackson, Mississippi are dealing with a water crisis. Many of the 180,000 people who live in the area had to stockpile water, close their businesses, and keep their children home. That's after the governor told residents to avoid drinking public water until the treatment plant is fixed. Here's more on that story. It's not business as usual for restaurants in Jackson, Mississippi. The ones that are open, like the Iron Horse Grill, are operating without reliable running water. State officials have told residents to avoid using public water indefinitely as they scramble to repair a long-neglected water treatment plant, which has now broken down. Andy Niesenson is the general manager of the Iron Horse Grill. It's incredibly frustrating. And, you know, yes, I am upset. I am passionate because, you know, this is something that, you know, I went to school for. I've got 20-plus years in this business, and we've had incredible success in Jackson. But without water... We're kind of, you know, our hand, we're handcuffed. We can't do anything. After record rainfall and flooding over the weekend, Obi Curtis Water Plant is no longer pumping out clean water. Please stay safe. Do not drink the water. Mississippi Governor Tate Reeves declared a state of emergency for some 180,000 residents in Jackson and surrounding communities, called up the National Guard and reiterated the urgent need to get the plant fixed. The current crisis follows a string of disruptions to the city's water supply in recent years caused by high lead levels, bacterial contamination, and storm damage. Now, Niesenson says his restaurant and employees are suffering even more. I mean, we're spending on average between $2,000 more per, per week on canned beverages, bottled water, bagged ice, additional trash pickups. And this is in week five. This is day 32 or 33 now that we've been under this bull water notice. And so as many independent restaurateurs like myself, uh, you know, some of them had to close yesterday. 
On Tuesday, the White House said it's ready to assist Mississippi once it receives an official request from the state. The resort town of Atlantic City, New Jersey, is trying to find a way to survive amid rising sea levels. Flooding in the city has been deepening and becoming more frequent. Here are the details. Atlantic City, New Jersey is right on the water, a barrier island once reachable only by boat, but in modern times via a causeway. The city fully occupies a small piece of land, and with water on either side, it's barely above sea level. At Tide Gauge has been in working for over 100 years, established around 1910, and since then, uh, sea level has risen about 1.5 feet over that time. So. If you can think of sea level rising, the water's got to go somewhere because of that and combinations with more intense storms, more precipitation. We're seeing a lot of more flooding, especially in the back barrier section. City leaders have so far said no to state offers to buy and demolish homes in flood zones. Instead, the city is currently spending $100 million to fortify and armor the city from rising sea levels. The idea is to really fortify and armor uh, all of Epstein Island, not just Atlantic City. And there's a significant effort to do that. Uh, over $100 million is being spent right now on seawalls, pump stations, bulkheads, and, and similar capital projects. Rutgers University projects the water at Atlantic City will rise another two and a half feet by 2070. But for many local residents, it's difficult to leave. Many a times I've thought about maybe moving more inland. Right here in Atlantic City, I think it's only a 48-block island. And so, yes, it can be uh, kind of scary when the water rise. I remember the last flood we had, the water came all the way up to the top of my stairs. So it can be very scary. Local coastal governments like Atlantic City will have to decide whether to retreat from the coastline over several years or to stay and only flee when and if the floodwaters become unlivable. The Drug Enforcement Administration is observing an alarming new trend of brightly colored fentanyl made to look like candy. The DEA says drug traffickers are using it to attract kids and teenagers. The agency said law enforcement began seizing the brightly colored rainbow fentanyl earlier this month. Drug dealers sell rainbow fentanyl in multiple forms, according to the DEA. These can be pills, powder, or even blocks that resemble sidewalk chalk. Just recently, authorities seized this kind of rainbow fentanyl resembling sidewalk chalk in Portland, Oregon, on two occasions. They also confiscated about 15,000 multicolored pills from one individual in West Virginia. Fentanyl is a synthetic opioid that is up to 50 times stronger than heroin. Traffickers often mix it with other drugs like heroin, cocaine, and methamphetamine. Synthetic opioids caused 66% of U.S. overdose deaths in 2021. On Friday, U.S. Customs and Border Protection seized $11.8 million worth of cocaine from a truck that was supposed to be carrying only baby wipes. It happened at the Columbia Solidarity Bridge that connects Texas and the Mexican state of Nuelo Loreto. The bridge crosses the Rio Grande. Officers initially sent the truck for a second inspection. Then officials say a canine and non-intrusive inspection turned up nearly 2,000 packages containing roughly 1,500 pounds of alleged cocaine. 
And south of the border, protesters in Mexico City took to the streets on Tuesday to mark the International Day of the Victims of Enforced Disappearances. Relatives of missing people and activists blocked one of the main avenues of Mexico City. They held portraits of people who have disappeared. There are more than 100,000 people who have officially gone missing in Mexico. The protesters requested the government step in to help them find their missing relatives. They drew a map of Mexico and pinned the searching sites. One of the protesters was Maria Morales. She says that she still hasn't found her husband, brother-in-law, and cousin who disappeared when they traveled to the U.S. 11 years ago. Morales said she realized she was not alone in the search for her loved ones and that encouraged her not to give up hope. In other news, a famed World War II fighter pilot has died at 101 years old. He was the only known Navy ace to shoot down German and Japanese planes. Dean Laird died August 10th, according to his daughter. The California native was born in 1921 and joined the Navy at the age of 20, days after the Pearl Harbor attack. Laird also flew in the Korean and Vietnam Wars, making a total of 32 trans-Pacific flights. After serving for 29 years, he retired from the Navy as a commander. And going further south, the end of a tribe. According to a tribal human rights organization, an indigenous man in Brazil, known as the Man of the Hole, has died. He is believed to be the last member of his tribe in the western Brazilian Amazon. He is also the only inhabitant of Tanaru indigenous territory. It's a small island, a forest, and a sea of vast cattle ranches. No outsider knows his name. He got the name of the Man of the Hole for his habit of digging deep holes to trap animals or to hide in. Brazil's Indian Affairs Department became aware of his existence around 1990. His location was confirmed in 1996. The agency tried to establish contact with him, but later gave up the idea. His death will open a new page in the battle for the land that he once inhabited. The indigenous territory where he lived has a protection order that is set to expire in 2025. After that, loggers, farmers, or illegal miners may get access to the land. And if you have any news tips or feedback for the show, don't hesitate to email us at news.today at ntd.com. And coming up, the U.S. and South Korea have begun their largest joint military exercises in years, a show of force amid a mounting threat from North Korea. And South Korea's neighbor Japan is also seeking to increase its defensive power by developing longer-range missiles. The move is said to counter two other threats, those from China and Russia. What? Welcome back. Mikhail Gorbachev has died at age 91. He is credited with ending the Cold War without bloodshed, and he oversaw the removal of Europe's Iron Curtain. Here are the details. After decades of Cold War tension and confrontation, Gorbachev, the last Soviet president, broke with the past. He helped to remove the Iron Curtain that had divided Europe and bring about the reunification of Germany. He struck nuclear arms deals with the United States and brought the Soviet Union closer to the West than at any point since World War II. Gorbachev struck up a rapport with the West and with Ronald Reagan, who had called the Soviet Union the evil empire. Together they negotiated a landmark deal in 1987 to scrap intermediate-range nuclear missiles. 
when pro-democracy protests swept across the Soviet bloc nations of communist Eastern Europe in 1989, he refrained from using force. Unlike previous leaders who had sent tanks to crush uprisings in Hungary in 1956 and Czechoslovakia in 1968. But those protests fueled aspirations for autonomy in the 15 republics of the Soviet Union, which disintegrated over the next two years in chaotic fashion. Gorbachev became general secretary of the Soviet Communist Party in 1985 at age 54. He was a reformer, setting out to revitalize the system by introducing limited political and economic freedoms. His policy of glasnost, or free speech, allowed previously unthinkable criticism of the party and the state, but also emboldened nationalists who began to press for independence in the Baltic republics of Latvia, Lithuania, Estonia and elsewhere. And in the final months of his life, Gorbachev has seen much of his legacy destroyed as President Vladimir Putin's invasion of Ukraine has brought sanctions on Moscow and talks in both Russia and the West of a new Cold War. Chinese troops have arrived in the Primorsky region of Russia's Far East. There, a joint multinational military exercise is set to begin. Video footage released by the Russian Defense Ministry shows the opening ceremony of the drills named Vostok 2022. The exercises are scheduled to begin September 1st and will last one week. Along with Russia and China, India, Belarus and Tajikistan are among the countries taking part in the war games. Earlier this month, China's Defense Ministry said its participation was part of an ongoing annual agreement with Russia. Relations between Beijing and Moscow have grown closer in recent years. Last summer, the two countries held a joint exercise with over 10,000 troops in north-central China. In October, their navies held drills in the Sea of Japan. Only days later, Russian and Chinese warships sailed to the western Pacific, where they held their first joint patrols. More international military cooperation, the U.S. and South Korea have resumed their largest joint field exercises in years. That's after the downsizing of previous drills due to diplomatic efforts and COVID-19 restrictions. The exercises began less than 20 miles from the fortified border with North Korea. On the field was live fire from American and Korean howitzers, tanks, machine guns and mortars. Apache helicopters were also involved. The two allies see the drills as a key part of deterring North Korea and its growing nuclear arsenal. But North Korea has condemned the drills as a rehearsal for war. Colonel Brandon Anderson is the deputy commander for the exercises. He said the drills are not aimed at any one adversary, but did allude to the threat from North Korea. Currently, there are more than 28,000 U.S. troops stationed in South Korea. Japan is increasing its defense budget and building missiles that they previously didn't allow themselves. It's part of a military expansion to counter threats from China and Russia. Japan says it will develop and mass-produce a cruise missile and a high-velocity ballistic missile. They will be able to strike at greater distances beyond the current range limit in Japan's constitution. The Defense Ministry didn't specify the exact range of the weapons or say how many they plan to make, but if deployed along the Okinawa Island chain in the southwest of Japan, the weapons would have enough range to reach targets in mainland China. This month, China fired five ballistic missiles into waters less than 100 miles from Japan, prompting alarm about China's regional ambitions. 
And still to come, how much are you willing to pay for French fries? In Europe, drought, high prices for cooking oil, and inflation are all contributing to high fry prices. And Oktoberfest is back in Munich, but can people afford it? The beer will be more expensive than ever before. Stay tuned for more right here on NTD News. France uncovers over 20,000 undeclared private swimming pools. According to the BBC, the country made the discovery using artificial intelligence. The finding allows authorities to collect a sizable amount of tax revenue. Swimming pools have to be declared under French law. They increase property value and therefore taxes. French authorities can now collect the equivalent of over $10 million in taxes. The artificial intelligence software was developed by Google and French firm Capgemini. The software identified pools in nine regions of France in aerial images. French officials want to try using the software to identify undeclared pools nationwide. A French newspaper report says that an average-sized pool can garner the equivalent of around $200 a year in taxes. The BBC reports the crackdown started after a French politician spoke about potential pool bans due to drought and water shortage. Authorities want to take it further and use the software to identify other taxable property like home extensions, patios, or gazebos. French fries are more expensive than ever in Belgium. The drought in Europe is expected to reduce the country's potato output, and high prices for cooking oil aren't helping. Here's NTD's Andrew Thomas with more. Bernard Lefebvre heads the Belgian National Union of Fry Makers. He says the average price of fries has already increased by up to 30% since the start of the year. He says the price increased by about 15 euro cents twice. Which makes 20 to 30 in, in, in less than a year, which is quite a lot. Right? We are not used to that type of price increases. He blames the high prices for cooking oil and energy, along with inflation. Potatoes are one of the summer crops suffering from the worst drought in Europe in 500 years. Parched conditions in Germany, France, the Netherlands, and Belgium could push EU potato production to its lowest level on record. The potato is smaller, which, which is a good news for the customer, because the smaller the potato, the smaller the fries, so the more fries you got in one color. So people will get more fries. But for Lefebvre and his fellow Belgians, the price increase can be hard to take. It is emotionally very, very difficult to accept that what is so personal to the Belgian is fries, is going to increase in price. In Brussels, customers reacted to the increased prices. I don't really um, consume French fries often, so for me it's like an extra. I don't think it's going to be a big impact, but with all other prices, yes, I totally agree that, that, that it, it is awful. But... I don't know if we can influence it in any way. So, so I think it will uh, uh, kind of have an effect on the, the restaurants here as well, because they, maybe they will order less, and then they will order less drinks. So it's not good for the economy of the, the, the kind of uh, this place. The EU's crop monitoring service this week reduced its forecasted potato yield, but the revised amount matches the average of the past five years. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. Oktoberfest is back in Munich after two years of pandemic closures, but as with many other things, the price of beer is rising fast. Let's take malt, which has doubled in price in the meantime. Malt prices have reached historic highs of over $600 or $700. 
These are prices that the German brewing industry has never seen before, and they first have to be processed. Oktoberfest is known for its high prices. This year, they'll be even higher than before. Beers at Oktoberfest are 33 ounces. One of those will cost around $13, a 15% increase compared to the last fest in 2019. In recent years, around 6 million people visited the celebrations annually. There are over 30 tents and a total of about 100,000 seats. Many of the visitors dress in traditional Bavarian clothes. For example, the women wear dirndl dresses and the men wear knee-length leather trousers. And if you have any news tips or feedback for the show, don't hesitate to email us at news.today at ntd.com. Just ahead, Berlin's huge consumer electronics fair returns in September after it was canceled in 2021. The show is the place to see the latest home tech. And the Tomatina Festival returns to Spain. This is one of the biggest food fights in the world. Stay tuned for more after the short break. Good to have you back. Now on to California's push for green vehicles in the name of public health and protecting the environment. Some say this move sacrifices Americans' purchasing freedoms to avoid threats that aren't a big concern. Others say it's a step towards the vision of an all-electric vehicle future, given California's massive influence on auto markets. Let's get some analysis on this. Our next guest is an expert on energy and climate policies who also studies markets. Please welcome Nick Loris, the Vice President of Public Policy at C3 Solutions. Great to have you on, Nick. Thanks for having me. What are the pros and cons of California's move to ban the sale of new gas-powered vehicles by 2035? Well, regrettably for consumers, it's mostly cons. It's the you know, state government dictating what type of vehicle Americans, and specifically Californians, should drive. And, and there's Nothing necessarily wrong with electric vehicles. I think it's an innovative, uh, exciting technology. The costs are coming down, sales are going up. That's all good. We want competition in the transportation sector. But at the same time, we shouldn't have the federal government or state governments dictating what type of cars consumers drive. And we've had that with fuel efficiency standards uh, and now with California's mandate. You could be ostensibly mandating pricier vehicles on consumers in California, uh, and uh, you know the savings for um, consumers in California. It may take years for them to recoup some of those costs, even if the price of electricity is far lower than the price of a gallon of gasoline. And, and so, really, it, it's restricting government. Uh, it's restricting consumer choice. Uh, and uh, it, it could set the precedent of having other states follow suit and therefore setting policy for the rest of the country. Okay, Nick, so you outlined some of the challenges here. You mentioned free market versus government intervention. I wanted to toss this at you. William Barrett, the National Clean Air Advocacy Director for the American Lung Association, said this is a turning point in cleaning up pollution. What's your reaction to this? Yeah, you know, I think... Tackling pollution, tackling emissions is important, and it, you know there is a role for the government there. But at the same time, you know the the role of public policy is to set emissions standards, not pick technologies to best get us there. That's essentially what the the market should do. So yes, we should have regulations that protect public health and safety, that reduce emissions, but 
you know, who's to say, you know, what is the most effective technology to get us there? Uh, and, you know, if you start to spread this across the country, when you're plugging into these vehicles, uh, particularly, you know, when uh, energy demand is high, that's when, you know, fossil fuel use for the electricity sector is at its highest as well for coal and natural gas. And so, you're shifting some of those emissions from you know the the vehicle to the outlet, and uh, there there's emissions there. So you need to uh, certainly account for the the full cost of emissions and pollutions for an action like this. So Nick, you mentioned plugging in. What obstacles does the plan face? For example, does the state have enough power charging stations, and will the California power grid be able to handle the added strain, especially in the summer months? Yeah, that's a good question. And, you know, it, it really kind of remains to be seen. You know, you certainly don't want to put the technology cart before the horse in terms of mandating this technology and then trying to play catch up, especially when you think about some of the challenges that California has already had with its electric grid um, and also the difficulty to build uh, in places like California because of government regulations and because of nimbyism. You know, it's a a state where a lot of cities had difficulty building bike paths, even though, you know, that's a greener alternative. Uh, yet there's been a lot of nimbyism and, and obstructionism to trying to build clean energy out in the state of California. And so 2035 is a long ways away. Uh, certainly the uh, state could get its act together, build the necessary infrastructure. Uh, but at the same time, if they don't have that. If you put growing needs on California's grid and growing electricity demand but through this mandate, that's going to not only raise the cost of electricity if you don't have the necessary supply to meet that demand, but it's also going to put more strain on the grid. Very interesting perspective. Nick Loris, C3 Solutions, thank you so much for your time today. Thanks again for having me. What's the next big thing in everyday tech? Consumers plan to visit the IFA Electronics Fair in Berlin to find out, but they're expecting fewer exhibitors than pre-pandemic and potentially fewer gadgets too. Entity's Andrew Thomas reports. Berlin's IFA Consumer Electronics Show has been the place to see the latest home tech for decades. The show can trace its roots back to 1924. Now it's one of Europe's biggest tech shows. Doors are set to open to the public on Friday, September 2nd. IFA is the largest consumer trade show in the world. So this is the only show where people can actually attend, the general public. So if you look at MWC or CES, these big shows are trade only. So IFA is one of the few shows where people get to come and touch the latest products and really see what's coming next. Nicole Scott has been covering the event and the tech industry for years. In 2020, the event was limited by strict pandemic measures and significantly fewer exhibitors. And in 2021, it was canceled altogether. Now, the show needs to win back exhibitors. Some are choosing to skip the gathering again this year. This is now going to be the first show that IFA's putting on where all the halls are open. They are definitely missing a lot of their major exhibitors. I believe a third of the big names that usually would attend uh, aren't going to be there. One big company that is making it out is Samsung. It's expected to make an announcement about its SmartThings ecosystem. You don't really hear about SmartThings. You usually hear about 
Amazon or Google or any of these big two players and are their devices connected? So I think this year we're going to be looking to see if Samsung is going to try to take back a little bit of that market share. Exhibitors are facing a global semiconductor shortage, and Russia's invasion of Ukraine has worsened inflationary pressures around the world. Energy costs have also shot up. So a lot of companies are going to be showing off products that maybe they don't want to promote too heavily because they don't have enough stock to supply potential demand. IFA Berlin runs from September 2nd to the 6th. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. Eurostar is set to axe its direct train service between London and Disneyland Paris beginning next June. The high-speed rail company says it must focus on core routes such as London-Paris and London-Brussels as it recovers from the impact of the pandemic. Direct trains between London and Marne-la-Vallée, a station next to Disneyland Paris to the east of the French capital, take just two and a half hours. They are popular with British families and have operated since 1996. That's aside from a suspension during the pandemic. The end of the service will leave passengers needing to make new travel arrangements in either Lille or Paris. And over to Spain, the iconic Tomatina Food Fight Festival is back in the town of Buñol. It was put on pause for two years due to the pandemic. Around 140 tons of tomatoes were transported to Buñol for the festival Tuesday. Six trucks loaded with overripe tomatoes will be set up and partygoers will hurl tomatoes from the trucks driving through a narrow street for one hour. Organizers say the traditional event will draw around 15,000 people this year. It will be the 75th edition. The Tomatina is said to have originated from a spontaneous food fight among the villagers in 1945. It was banned for a while during the 1950s, but today it draws large crowds of locals as well as foreign tourists. It is considered one of the biggest food fight festivals in the world. Over to Canada, where authorities are investigating the theft of a famous portrait of Winston Churchill. The portrait is one of the most reproduced photos of the 20th century. The original was on display in a hotel in Ottawa, but sometime between last Christmas and early January, someone replaced it with a reproduction. No one noticed until last weekend. Hotel employees realized that the frame holding the print wasn't hung properly, and it didn't match others in the space. The value of the stolen portrait is around $100,000. An expert on art theft is optimistic the original will be recovered, but points out that arrests in cases like this are rare. And still to come, a remarkable American teen who started his own business at age 7 and penned his own biography at 14. He lost his life in a kayak accident in June, but his legacy continues to inspire others. We have his incredible story after the break. A remarkable American teen with selfless motives passed away in a tragic kayak accident at 14 years of age, one month after releasing his autobiography. His legacy continues to inspire others. We take a look at the incredible feats he accomplished as a child and spoke to his father, who encouraged him every step of the way. Hey everyone, I'm Cole. Meet 14-year-old Kevin Cooper from Barrel, Utah, who went under the pseudonym of Cole Summers. Cole here. It's been about a week since I published the ebook version of my autobiography, Don't Tell Me I Can't. Kevin posted this video on his Twitter account a month before his tragic death in a kayaking accident. 
We, we had no idea the reach he was starting to have online. Uh, obviously, that, that's been something that's been very uplifting for us, is seeing how many people he's encouraged and inspired. He was already making waves on Twitter, sharing with homeschool communities his mindset and education, many naming him a prodigy. To say Kevin was ambitious is an understatement. At seven years old, he began his first business breeding rabbits. He started a farm at seven years old. He owned his first truck at eight, a payment for replacing cylinder head valves for a neighbor. He grew his farm into a 347-acre ranch by nine, a house at 10, which he renovated, and bought his first tractor at 11, a birthday present to himself. By 14, Kevin had a plan to tackle hay and farming aquifer depletion, a solid solution to an environmental crisis where he lived. And Kevin never stopped playing. He, he took joy in everything he did. He was a character. He loved to have fun, try to make people happy. Both of Kevin's parents were homebound, as his mother is partially sighted and his father is a U.S. veteran who uses a wheelchair. This led them to homeschool and then unschooling. It turned into unschooling when he was six, and he became enthralled with studying uh, Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger. Kevin wrote his autobiography when he was 14. He called it Don't Tell Me I Can't, an ambitious homeschooler's journey. The book covers the story of his family and what shaped his mindset. He shares the ups and downs, successes and setbacks, encouraging other homeschool and unschool families. He didn't have all the answers, but he figured if he kept trying, he was going to succeed. Even when he wrote the book, he wouldn't tell anybody local at all. He wouldn't earn every sale through earning people's respect online. Sadly, he was never able to realize all of his goals. On June 11, the 14-year-old boy lost his life while kayaking in Utah's Newcastle Reservoir with his older brother, who has autism. Throughout all of his impressive projects, his parents are most proud of how he cared for others, his family, his animals, and the earth. He treated everybody around him with love and kindness. I would tell people that uh, are a lot more capable than what the systems of education and, and everything else around us leaves us to believe that we can do on, as, on as individuals. You would tell people that they are more capable than they've been led to believe. Let's hope Kevin's legacy inspires others. A remarkable lad indeed. While he had a tragically short life, he certainly accomplished a lot. Thanks to the parents for speaking out and sharing his legacy with all of us. Our thoughts go out to them for their loss. And August is almost gone, but the hot weather is still here. Some people struggle with the heat. What are the danger signals in your body? Here's Gina Marie with Strong Mind and Body. Summer heat is wonderful for some and a downright threat to others. Oppressive summer heat gets everyone talking about the importance of staying cool. But what can we do to mitigate the hottest summer heat and how does it affect our bodies other than making us feel fatigued? Hot weather is like a stress test for your body. Heat can pose serious risks to both heart and brain. A CDC report in 2020 showed hospital admissions for cardiovascular problems jumped in the days following heat spikes. Other studies showed hot temperatures seem to increase the risk of ischemia stroke. 
Regulating heat is all about blood flow. In a healthy body, the blood goes to the skin to eradicate heat through perspiration. Sweat evaporates, keeping the body cool. Excessive heat can overwhelm this system. If you have blood flow issues like high blood pressure, a history of heart disease or type 2 diabetes, the risk resulting from heat exposure makes it difficult to keep cool. Symptoms of heat exhaustion include headache, dizziness, nausea and cool moist skin. There are ways to overcome this. Treat it by moving away from the heat source and cooling down with a damp cloth. After an hour, if symptoms persist, see your doctor. Heat stroke is severe and a medical emergency. You'll have a rapid pulse and a body temperature of over 103 degrees Fahrenheit or 39 degrees Celsius. Your skin will be red hot and dry. Make sure you stay hydrated. This helps the heart to pump efficiently and the muscles to work properly. Monitor your fluid loss through perspiration and drinks to compensate. Your urine should be light yellow. Avoid heavy foods that tax your digestive system. Go for watermelon, cucumber and other water-rich vegetables. Be prepared to slow down long enough to listen to your body and then employ that wisdom. A dazzling pink diamond described as one of the world's most pure and most saturated could fetch more than 21 million when it goes up for bid in October. At over 11 carats, the cushion-shaped gem is called Williamson Pink Star as a tribute to two other pink diamonds. One is the CTF Pink Star, which sold for a record $71 million at auction in 2017. The other is Williamson Stone, an over 23-carat diamond given to Queen Elizabeth as a wedding gift by Canadian geologist John Williamson. It was discovered in his mine in Tanzania. The Williamson Pink Star also originates from that mine. They are exceptionally rare in nature. Um, if you look at diamonds, you know, we all know as diamonds as being beautiful, wonderful, natural beauties. Uh, on of diamonds, only 5% of them are coloured diamonds. Of coloured diamonds, only 3% of those are pink. You then add in the extra factors like it being over 10 carats, internally flawless and type 2A, and you get right down to the pinnacle, something that is truly, truly phenomenally rare in nature. Top quality colored stones are prized by the super wealthy. Many are expected to bid on the gem when it is auctioned on October 5th since the stone is so exceptionally rare. Ahead of the auction, the diamond will go on tour to Dubai, Singapore and Taipei before arriving in Hong Kong. That's all for today's program. We're really glad to have you with us. Please send us an email if you'd like to tell us something. We're going to put it on screen. For podcasters, that's news.today at ntd.com. I'm Kevin Hogan. NTD News, New York City.